wonderful guy. He's just amazing guy. And when he worked on bows, I noticed that the world shut off. And he had this fluid movement. If you could imagine a river, the, the water flows. And if you, if you flew over a river, you would see how it turns and how, how it just, you know, it slows and it speeds up. And it, uh, it just how it moves. And, and Robert is that way when he worked. Every movement meant something. And, and he just flowed there was not there was no jerkiness or anything to it welcome to rosin the bow an audio journey through the world of the violin family i'm your host joe McHugh. and let me tell you how the rosin the bow project got started Robert Ray is a bow maker and former owner of the R.L. Ray Violin Shop in Olympia, Washington. The shop is now being run by John Hansen, but Bob still drops by the shop from time to time, and it's always a treat to catch up with him there and swap a few stories. Because you see, along with being a master bow maker and a successful violin dealer and shop owner for many years, a complex and risky business at the best of times, Bob is also a gifted raconteur. I discovered this particular talent when I approached Bob with an offer. You see, I was needing a better bow. My wife Paula is an artist, and Bob's shop was inside a former gas station with wraparound windows. When I would drive by his shop of a winter's evening, I could see the luthiers who worked for Bob rehairing bows and cutting bridges, the yellow light of the shop spilling out into the darkness much like the light of the diner in Edward Hopper's iconic painting, Nighthawks. And that's what gave me the idea for a trade. Paula would make a painting of Bob's shop at dusk, perhaps with someone about to enter the building. A grandfather, let's say, holding his granddaughter's hand and her other small hand clutching a violin case. And in exchange, I would get a bow. I knew I wouldn't be able to afford one of Bob's handmade bows, but he had a large collection of decent bows in the shop that would be on par, price-wise, for such a painting. Well, thankfully, both Paula and Bob agreed to the trade, and Paula began visiting the shop to take photographs and generally get a feel for the place. And I would tag along, and Bob would keep me entertained by telling me stories. And I discovered his knowledge concerning the history of the violin and the legendary violin makers and dealers was extensive and fascinating. His own personal journey as a bow maker was riveting as well. And that's when the proverbial light went on. Since the violin world is full of such great stories, well then why shouldn't someone make an effort to record them? Thus was born the Rosin the Bow Project. Here then, is a conversation I had with Bob Ray back in May of 2012 when the Rosin the Bow project was just getting started. I will feature more of that conversation in a future podcast. I've always played guitar all my life. There's never been any violin in my family, violin players, except for my grandfather, who I never knew. His name was Silas Pollard, and he was a carpenter, and he built his own violin which, you know, everybody says, Grandpa's violin. 
but nobody played, so it was under the bed. And when I was a little boy, I would sneak under the bed in the spare room, and I'd, I'd have to look at this fiddle. And it was probably a piece of junk. I mean, it, it's the way those guys did that stuff back in the old days. But to me, it, it was interesting. And then I never saw another violin again. That violin got lost when we moved to Alaska. Friends threw it in the trash. They stored stuff and threw it away, took a dump. But uh, to me, it would mean the world, no matter what it is. Violins become, they, they have a sentimental attachment beyond any other instrument. You know. Just give so, me a little, like, place me where, where it was, what year you were born. Okay. I was born in Corvallis, Oregon, 1957. My father was in the military. Um, so we traveled around. We lived in different cities in Oregon and uh, Northern California. And we ended up, we were in Arizona, Fort Huachuca. Um, and in, I believe it was 65 or 66, we moved to Washington, moved to Olympia. And then he went on a tour to Vietnam. And I've, I've lived in Washington basically ever since. With a short stint, uh, my last two years in high school, we lived in a bush town in Alaska, you know, 300 miles from any road. As far as a musical background, you know, I played guitar. Our family was dirt poor. We were, I remember, as five years old living in, in Westwood, California. And my dad was in Korea at the time. We had absolutely no food, literally no food. Refrigerator or cupboards, there was nothing. Not even a cube of butter. And I remember crying in the morning. On my way to kindergarten, I rode a little German bicycle to kindergarten every day. And I was crying because I was hungry, and I knew I was going to have nothing to eat. But then I remembered that we always get a cookie and Kool-Aid, and that was going to be my dinner. But that was happy enough for me, and I did a half a day kindergarten. But on the way home, I realized that cookie and Kool-Aid didn't make it, and I was, I was scared. I was scared that I was going to starve to death. Um, and when I got there, of course, my aunt and uncle were there unloading groceries and we had a big dinner and, and everything was fine. But I remember those days and I, I actually remember those days fondly. Any adversity we've, I've ever had in my life, for some reason, my brothers and sisters don't, but I've embraced it as part of life and part of forming my character. I didn't realize that when I was young, you know, I didn't, didn't embrace it as much at the time. But as an adult, I wouldn't change anything. Even things that I'm, I'm ashamed of, even things that I, I wish I had never had to go through, they form who you are as a person. And so I welcome them and, and embrace them. But anyway, so we, I, we went, I went to school, grade school here, high school, and then we moved to the bush in Alaska. Still, I played guitar, but no music um, really in the family. And when I got married to my wife, I was 25, and she played piano. And it was one of the things that endeared me to her, is that she played piano. So I played my guitar, and, and uh, she couldn't take the piano with her when we'd go and play music. And I could take my guitar and play anywhere with anybody. And that, that really kind of bothered her. So she, a friend got a violin. So she kind of liked it, and I was teaching her guitar, um, which she didn't like. I think it was me teaching that she didn't like. But uh, so I found a violin in a pawn shop, bought one and bought another. And she started taking lessons. And I met an old 
accordion player and fiddle dealer in Centralia. Most wonderful man in the world. His name was Ed Morkin, and he's a legend in the old-time fiddlers. I mean, Eddie, Eddie was just everything to everybody. And I played music with Eddie a lot, but when I first met him, a guy named Jimmy Ritchie, who I was taking a guitar lesson from, Jimmy was like 16 years old, and I mentioned that I was getting my wife a violin. And he said, oh, you have to meet Ed Morkin. And he drove me over to Eddie's house. Now, Jimmy Ritchie now is a major, he owns a major recording studio in Nashville. He's a phenomenal guitar player and songwriter and studio musician. He's toured with a lot of the great country guys. And he's producing something from George Strait right now and a lot of the other big guys. But Jimmy in them days was just an over-talkative kid that played guitar like nobody's business. And he took me over to Eddie's, and he had all these fiddles hung up on the wall. And, and Eddie was this short, round guy, Norwegian, and full of stories, full of lies like the old-time fiddle dealers. He never knew which, which one was the truth and which one was a lie. And that's, kind of, that's one of the things that endeared me to him, is he, his, his color. He was just so colorful. But um, so we ended up, he ended up selling my wife a fiddle. And later he, he showed up at my house one day. He had a Mazda GLC and he had 80 violins, a cello and two violas stuffed in there. He was driving that thing with his head on the steering wheel from Portland. He went and bought it from some guy down in Portland. And then he wanted to get rid of these. And Eddie's motto is every violin's worth a hundred bucks and there's no violin worth more than 200 so he tried to get rid of these violins to me. He had 75 of them left. And he pushed them on me. Bob, you should be a violin dealer. You should, you should open a shop. And, and I was working on violins then. And I would drive to Seattle and, and I would go and see David Stone. And he would, David actually was a wonderful mentor. Here's a kid that didn't know anything about it, comes up and, and befriended him and, he sat down and he said, you sit down at this bench. And another guy who was working for him, he said, you teach him how to rehair a bow. So the entire day I sat and watched him rehair bows. And I'd come up another time and, he'd, and I'd bring something up and he'd say, oh, this neck is loose. Well, this is what, go talk to David Van Zandt go talk to this guy over here and learn how to do that. And, and it's something that, that David Stone gave pretty freely. Um... And I, I couldn't, I mean, he's really the one that set me on a professional path. But Eddie got me these 75 fiddles for 10 bucks a piece. And they had the ugliest cases you ever saw. I mean, they, this, this stuff was definitely all attic fiddles. And, and so I worked on them. You know, I could practice at home. And there was about 200 bows. And, and of course, all of my life after I got involved in fiddles, Every time I saw a violin or a bow, I tried to buy it, you know. And of course, every one was a real Strad. Um, that's pretty. That's pretty common with people who get that bug. They're looking for that big thing. But I found myself basically starting to work on violins, and more people would come to me and have me do stuff, and and it just grew. So by going to see all of the the professional violin people, I found that there was just a big gap between a professional and what I call a hacker. And Robert was a hacker. 
And I, what I had learned, a lot of stuff I had learned was from guys in their garage. That it's, oh, you don't need to pay for this. You know, it would, you, know, you can do it yourself. But when I really saw great instruments and I saw great work, I, I realized that these things are precious. Not all of them are precious because I had now probably 200 of them that weren't very precious. Um, Sandy Bradley got those. She used to do an auction up at the, the Folklife Festival. So I, I think I took 100 violins and 200 bows up to her and a bass. And I think I made back, I think I made like $750. My investment probably was ten or $20,000. So, so I got some of my money back. You know? But that's the cost of an education. So I would go to those guys, and, and, I, and you know, they, even though they were nice, they would always give this little caution. Make sure you know what, what the instrument is before you do it. Maybe you should call me before you do this, and maybe you should check with me. And I was so afraid of tearing into something that I couldn't reverse. But, uh, you know, that caution really stuck in me because they showed me great instruments. And I realized that either I'm going to be a professional or I'm going to be a garage hacker. You know, the closest professional was in Seattle. I mean, there was a violin shop here in town, and, and, and he was also an inspiration to me, he was a guy uh, who learned from a commercial baker, was an amateur violin maker, taught him how to make some violins, and he was a player. And so he went to this guy once a week or something like that and made stuff and took to him. And then he moved up here and started a little shop in his house. And so we went to him to have some work done, and, and he wanted double what any of the other violin shops wanted to refit a set of pegs. And I, you know, we were friendly, but I said, you know, I just think that's quite a bit. You know, that's an awful lot. And he said, well, you couldn't do it. And it was pretty snotty how he said it. And so that was like, I looked at him and I said, you want to bet? And that was it. That was when I went and bought the tools and I did it. Uh, I think that was, everybody else kind of pushed me towards a certain direction. And that's when I started doing it. And then when I realized that I didn't want to destroy instruments accidentally and I wanted to know more about them, the history became, you know, all your life through school, I hated history. But the history of the violin came, history became alive in me. Um, when you look at a violin from the 1600s, what town was it from? What was the politics of the town? Why was violin making so good for a certain period and all of a sudden, it just dies and goes away. How come Cremona is the right place? And how come Cremona stopped being the great place for all the great violin makers? All of that has to do with politics. All that has to do with disease, famines. All of those things shape uh, what happens in the local economy, just like 9-11 has shaped what's happening to violin shops today, just like the Internet is shaping what's happening Things are changing in our world, and a violin is timeless. It doesn't change. It hasn't changed. You've never, we've never improved the violin, never. Because of music changing, we've lengthened the necks and changed the angle of the neck, but we haven't improved the violin itself. 
since its inception. It's, it's amazing. It's a perfect instrument. used to have a bedroom, spare bedroom, one of the kids had gone, and I had an old sewing machine, and I had a little mat across it, and I was kind of working on the fiddles. And I would go and see David Stone and a few other people to get advice on. But Ed Morkin sold me all of these violins, and, and him and I played music all the time together. We played all over. Ed Morkin was in his 70s, and he would pick me up, and we'd go out Friday night and play and to get home at 3 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, he, I played guitar, and he played accordion. But there was always fiddlers. I mean, we were going to a jam somewhere or a show. And Saturday morning, he would be 7, 8 o'clock at my door. Come on, let's go. And him and my wife and I, we'd take off and go play music all day and and go do different things or maybe go meet, you know, he heard about a violin in some town somewhere and we'd go look at it. And then we'd play music all Saturday night and at 7 o'clock in the morning he was there to pick me up to go see our friend in, in Bremerton, Joe Hansen, who was a violin maker, an amateur, self-taught violin maker. And we would spend the day with Joe playing music and looking at Joe's stuff and, and his wife Flossie would fix us dinner. And we did that for years years upon years. But so finally I decided that prematurely that I was going to open a violin shop. What were you doing for a living? Well, I ran electrical construction. I did electrical engineering. I did uh, project management, um, estimating. That's what I did. And the violin stuff you did at night? And the violin stuff I did at night and weekends and... Um, just kind of come along with the music. And of course, you know, I was an expert by that time, like everybody who gets the violin bug. You know, first you're an expert, and then you start to learn something. It happens to everybody um, that, that gets involved, that, that gets bit with the bug. But so I started a shop. I decided I was going to start a shop. I didn't like what I was doing. I made very good money, but I didn't like um, the pace of life the, the type of life that that, that that was. So I started a violin shop in my garage. I built a room, and I had to make a sign, and I had to give it a name. Its name was More K Violin Shop for Ed Morkin and Ray. He wasn't part of the shop, but I loved him and honored him in that fashion. So here I am, a guy who really doesn't know anything, and I have a sign at the end of my driveway, and I'm working on stuff, but I found that I would stay in my shop all day or all night, 
until morning came, working, but I would spend all my time with the bows. Pretty soon, the violins, I was interested in the violin history, and I would look at the photographs, and, and I would try to understand it, but the bows, for some reason, it just became a magnet. I couldn't spend enough time with the bows. The way they're shaped, uh, how something so minimal could be so great and so important. Um, and that's kind of, you know, I was rehearing bows and repairing bows. And that is at the point that I decided, you know, I want to be a bow maker. Of course, going up to David's, I also met who I consider the world's greatest bow maker, Charles Espy, who now lives in Port Townsend. Charles is a French bow maker. He trained uh, in France, and he's part of the old Miracor school, and he changed the world of bow making as we know it today. We are in the golden age of bow making. After the World War, you know, Miracor was bombed out really bad. And Miracor in France was the city that all the bow makers started in. They're known for lace and bows and violins. It was a violin-making town. I'd been there. They have the oldest school, violin-making school, uh, the French school in Mircourt. And they've reopened that school. I, I actually was there and met a lot of the students and teachers there. But Charles Espy and Stefan Thomas show, there was a small group of them that uh, after the war, before Charles's time, after the war, violin bows just became clubby and big and a lot more amateur work coming out. And of course, bows weren't worth any money. Uh, Sartori was dead, um, which was the last of the great French school. There's, you know, there's always exceptions. But when we talk about the gods of bow making, there's Francois Xavier Tourt. There is Pessois, who if Tourt never was, Pessois would be our Tourt. But above him, there's Tourt, Pecot, Voran, and Sartori. That's basically the generation of, of the evolution of the bow, of the gods of bow making. And that covers the first hundred years of bow making. And they developed the bow and, and changed it. But I, so I'm spending all my time with these bows, and, and I'm, gonna, I'm going and seeing David Stone, and he's showing me great bows. And I would drive down and see, I think David Kerr had just got started at shop. And Paul Schubach was a wonderful, wonderful person down in Portland. He, he just let me in, and Mark Moreland worked for him, a shop manager. And, and Paul took his time. Paul used to run a school down there. Paul trained under Rene uh, Morizot in Mircourt. He was also trained in Mittenwald, Germany as violin maker. Paul was really great. He, he, was, he was open, uh, like David Stone was. And I would bring stuff down to Paul, and he would tell me if it was any good. And he'd give me little hints, you know. French bows, kind of like this. You know, they, the Germans do it this way. And him and David Stone taught me a lot. So I met Charles Espy, and I met a few bow makers from going to these shops. And one day it just is like a light bulb lit up. And it was like, I'm going to be a bow maker. I don't care about this violin. 
You know, I, I love the violins. I'll always be around them. But what am I going to do with my hands? What do I want to do? I want to have that little table. I want to have those little tools, and I want to want to shape that wood into that great piece of work that a bow is. That's such a simple thing that you can just, people just, just like a Stradivari, they just drool over it. And a bow to a player is the moving part of the violin. It's the voice of the violin. It's, it's, it's like the vocal cords. It's what actually takes the air that's in the violin and, and, and makes it move and makes it vibrate. And it changes. You know, a bow can, can make a violin sound dark, and a different bow will make it sound bright, as you well know. I mean, you've gone through that bow hunt. So, so I, I went to, of course, you know, I talked to David personally then. By then, we were fishing buddies and, and everything else. And Charles Espy had a little shop underneath David Stone's shop on the first floor. And Noel Burke, another great bow maker, was apprenticing with Charles Espy at the time, and I got to know Noel. So when I was ready, I went to Charles, and I said, Charles, I want to become a bowmaker, and I want to apprentice with you. And Charles, quite rightfully, said no, you know, um, which I found was a serious bowmaker is a definite test. And Chuck talked to me, though. He, he said, if you want it, you've got to want it more than anything in the world. And I said, I do. This is it. So he said, well, Robert Shalek is down in Portland, Macon. And he learned with Robert Shalek. He learned from Robert Shalek. And he called, he, he even then called Robert uh, his master, one of his masters. And he says he's looking for somebody to make frogs for him. Go see him. Well, I'm in Olympia. I drive down to Portland, and I called Bobby and never got a call back, and never got a call back, and I called him a few times. And so I called Chuck, and I said, Chuck, you know, I really want you to reconsider taking me as apprentice. Would you call Bobby Shalek? And Charles is a real, he's a real focused individual. He can be quite intimidating, but he's really the sweetest guy in the world. He said, I told you to call Robert. I said, I did. He said, well, then what's the problem? I said, I called him. He never called me back. So? How come you're not down there knocking on his door? I thought you wanted to be a bowmaker. If you want to be a bowmaker, you'll be a bowmaker. So he called Bobby. But I, I got a hold of Bobby, and I went down there, and he had already hired somebody, or not really hired. He let somebody come in to teach him. They don't really pay you to do this. I mean, we, we could pay them, and, and some of us do. Some people do. So uh, Rico Meyer, who's a great peg maker now, but was doing this with Bobby. And so Bobby allowed me to come and watch him one day a week. So one day a week, I took off from work Mondays, and I drove all the way down. That's two and a half, two hours, two hours yeah, and 15 two, minutes. Yeah, two and a half hours, depending on traffic. And, and I would watch Bobby. Bobby would not let me pick up a tool to work. I asked Bobby, there's... Pernambuco all over the floor. I grabbed the broom. Nope, give me the broom. I said, no, I'll sweep it up. Nope, you're here to watch. I'll take care of my own dust. Bobby would not, but he was, he answered every question I ever had. So I sat there with this little notebook, and I wrote everything down. And how old is he? Robert's a little bit older than me. 
I think Robert, I'm 54, I bet you Robert may be nearing 60. Maybe nearing 60. Wonderful guy. He's just amazing guy. And when he worked on bows, I noticed that the world shut off. And he had this fluid movement. If you could imagine a river, the, the water flows. And if you, if you flew over a river, you would see how it turns and how, how it just, you know, it slows and it speeds up. And it, uh, it just, how it moves. And, and Robert is that way when he worked. Every movement meant something. And, and he just flowed. There was, not, there was no jerkiness or anything to it. So I did that for six or eight months. Every Monday I'd show up and, and write. And I've got a book, still got it today. A little notepad of all the things. I drew pictures of his tools, took measurements. And I would go home and I would spend that week making what I saw. And then I'd take it back to him and he would critique it. I think he was working on frogs and I watched him go through this certain process. So I went back and I roughed out my frogs the way he did. But I didn't know anything about the proper solder. I used regular silver solder that you get at Radio Shack with real sterling silver. And I made my ferrules and soldered them. Well, soft solder doesn't hold. You have to have the right thing. But I did it just like Bobby did it. I just didn't have the right solder. And I made like 10 of these frogs and took them down the next week. And Bob was like... <laughs> 10 frogs, and he looked at them, and he was good about saying a little bit of good. But, I mean, he was also honest. He told me what pieces of crap they were and what I did wrong, but he told me why I did it wrong. And he showed me the ferals. You know, you can just pull them apart if you put enough pressure on there. So I went back and fixed them, and that's what I did for six months, and then he moved back to France. He moved back to Paris. So I was out of a a teacher, but before he moved, Charles Espy showed up one day. Uh, in the meantime, of course, I'm making it home and, and repairing and, and working on this whole thing and working a full-time job. And somewhere in there, I decided that I wanted to be a bow maker. And I went to my wife and I said, Charles told me if I wanted to be a bow maker, I had to quit my job and move to Paris and I had to devote myself to it. So I am going to be a bow maker. You know, we're making, what, 100 grand a year? And that was good money. We didn't have any real worries. Kids were out of the house. We had it made. And our house was almost paid for. I bet you I didn't know $35,000 on our five acres in our house. And my wife said, okay, honey, that's what you need to do. So Charles, I was down at Bobby's, and Charles Espy showed up, and Chuck said, you know, David Stone's losing his bowmaker. You should talk to him. And I said, but I want to be a bowmaker, because at David Stone's, you don't make bows. David Stone's, you rehair bows. And I want to be a bowmaker. Chuck said, you will see every great maker in the world in that shop. You will learn more than than anything else. Of course, Charles Espy is a god in my vision when it comes to bow making. So first thing I did was talk to David. And David said, you know, are you sure you can make this trip? And this is full time. You got your other job. But he offered me the job, too. He also wanted me. It was almost like Charles had prearranged all this stuff. But then David 
David knew me well by then. We were close friends. So I quit my job. I didn't move to Paris. I did go to Paris later. But I drove to Seattle every day. Made uh, minimum wage. You know, David was willing to pay me a little bit more, but with minimum wage and my unemployment, because I made so much money before, I could survive. And that, and at that point in time, I took off my watch. I had a, a Rolex and I had a Pulsar. I took off my watches, and I've not put them back on since. I'm going to be a bow maker. I'm not going to be a prisoner of time. I'm not going to be in the, the electrical trade. It was constant, you know, you have to have this done by this time. And, and it was constant battle, lawsuits, and and trying to get 40 men to do their job and, and babysit them. So the day I left my job and made my commitment to be a professional bow maker, I took off my watch and I put it in a drawer. I had two watches, a Rolex and a Pulsar. I liked the Pulsar better than the Rolex, actually. But they were gold and fancy. I put them away. I have not worn them since. I just decided that I was going to just have this new life as a bow maker and I was not going to be a prisoner of time and that I was going to devote myself to, to bow making and not worry about the other things that go on. And you have to, you have to get there. You have to get to that point where, um, you know, when you first learn Every, this is this is what happens to violin makers and bow makers. The person who walks through our shop door that has any kind of woodworking experience usually aren't players. You know, they're, they're learning or, or they know a little bit about playing, but they haven't grown up around a professional violin shop. The first thing they do is, is like, they look at my bows. Well, how much are your bows? Well, my bows are $3,500 for ebony and silver violin bow. God, how long does it take you to make a bow? It takes a week, two weeks if I really take my time. If if I'm working solid, the 12-hour days that, that you do. And you can see it in their head. Okay, wait a minute. One week, $3,500. So if I work 50 weeks out of the year, because I get a two-week vacation, so 35 times 50, and they've got it all figured out. I'm going to be a bow maker. I mean, it don't take 10 minutes that, that they walk out, they're going to be a bow maker. I don't have to go to a regular job. I can work at home. I can do all of this stuff, you know, all on my own. And, and I make a great living. And won't life be fantastic? And then I did the same thing. There was, it was there. It was part of me. You know, there's, you know, the Jekyll and Hyde thing going on. So then I went and started making a bow. A year later, I still hadn't really made a bow from start to finish, from the time I started with Bobby Shalek, I made parts of bows. You know, at David Stone's, I didn't make there. But the one great thing of going to David Stone's was that I had Mondays off, Sunday and Monday, and I drove, what was it, 80 miles each way for minimum wage. For three years, I told him, I will work for you for three years because I knew I wanted to be a bow maker. But three years of study there meant a lot to me. I could learn a lot, and he agreed to it. But I'd take Mondays, and I'd go over to Bainbridge Island and see Chris English, and I'd see Morgan Anderson, 
Or I'd run over to Port Townsend, Paul Seafried, another one of the gods of bowmaking, the self-taught bowmaker that has his restoration work. There's nobody in the world. Paul, Paul created and laid out such amazing restoration techniques and, and his end results, uh, it's just phenomenal. What's involved in a restoration? Well, the, well, every restoration is different. So it, bro- it, bows it's get brand broken. new every time. Bows, bows get bo- broken, frogs break, uh, parts of frogs break, uh, things wear out. Uh, it used to be the button on a bow. In shops that didn't really have bow makers, or, and they didn't care as much about bows. I see so many Sartori bows or Lamis or these great bow makers that somebody's put a German button on because the shaft's stripped out. They don't know how to just pull the, the threaded shaft out and put a new one in right. So it's easier to just reach over there and grab a German one and stick it in. So now a Sartori, $35,000, $40,000 for an ebony and silver one, one in great shape, all of a sudden has a German button on it. Now you're going to take, for one, is you're going to take at least 20% off for the button for value, maybe more. And then you got to sell it to a customer. Customer doesn't want, even if you're buying it for $20,000, they want the original button on there. They don't want to buy it without, you know, you want something pure. I don't want a, a Rembrandt that, that, Half of it's painted by, you know, Bob Ray. <laughs> there you go. No matter how good he is, doesn't matter. No matter how good it functions. And, and this, is, this is the type of thing that's, that's went on, but it's also how our world has changed. Because of people like Paul Seafried, Charles Espy, all of these, and Hans Weissar too. You know, in the violin world, Hans Weissar has, has created, um, from Wurlitzer, Sacconi, which is, I think we should really give Sacconi the credit um, for his training of the world's greatest restoration people and the world's greatest experts. Let's go back to that a little bit because we okay. need to know who that is. We wouldn't know who that is. So you would, just to finish, so you're going up there on your day off on your Mondays and you're, you're hanging around with these guys still. Yeah. It's still fascinated with bow making. And I'm bugging, I mean, I bugged Chris English so bad that... <laughs> <laughs> to teach me. I mean, I still, I'm still asking Charles Espy. Charles told me never give up. So, well, you know, I better give him a piece of his medicine, follow his advice. I asked Morgan. I asked Paul. I, I asked everybody. And I would continue to ask. Well, Paul was a wonderful guy. He'd let me come and I'd learn restoration stuff from him and just spend the day. He's just, just this wonderful man. is amazing. And Chris was like, one day he said, Bob, if you want to rough out bows for me, maybe frogs, you know, I'll show you what I know. He said, you're just such a pain in the ass. How can I say no? He said, if you want it that bad, how can I say no? So I'd go one day a week, work five days a week for David, and drive to Bainbridge Island one day a week and work with Chris. What did your wife think of all this? Oh, in the meantime, my wife was... In an auto accident, she was a nurse. She could not work. So our income went to one of the copes or whatever it was. She'd get, you know, a small part of her insurance paid a small portion of our salary. And I make a minimum wage again. Plus, I'm driving 160 miles a day round trip. 
so she can't work. Our son moves back home with his daughter, who's three years old, and gets custody, custody battle, which we had to pay for. Um, so yeah, life became pretty crazy, pretty crazy. And then I was actually, my son was starting to learn bow making. And one day he committed suicide and we lost our son. Um, so we went through a lot of tragedy, but I never through, yeah, there's a lot of other things that I could throw in, but those are, you know, kind of the major things. And of course we ended up raising our granddaughter. It was a lot of stress on my wife, but I never once turned my head away from, my mind away from making bows. I was, I could see my, myself doing nothing else. first time I went to the Louvre, it's like David Stone and I are in Paris. David and I went to Paris together the first time to Music Cora, a great exhibition, world exhibition on violin and bow making and music in general. But we go to the Louvre and you walk in there and it's like, yeah, this country boy is going to see some paintings. First thing I saw was the sculptures. I walk in this room and it was like, I couldn't breathe. This stuff is, is just, it's alive. Somebody has taken this piece of marble or piece of granite or whatever they used in, in, in this piece of art. And it's not just a, a stone that's in the shape of a human body. This is real. This thing is alive. That thing looks at you. You want to touch it. You look at a painting of these great painters, you want to touch it. You want to actually step inside it. The paintings are alive. They're not a flat piece of art. The colors are brighter than the colors that I see today. The colors touch you. It's, it's just, it's... So, and that's what a bow was to me. When I saw a bow, the way the wood reflected... They call it, you know, windows in the wood. Pernambuco is just this amazing wood. The depth of Pernambuco, if you look at Pernambuco, great Pernambuco, there's a little tiny square with a dot in it. And behind that, there's a little tiny square with a black dot in it. And there's millions of them side by side when it's cut in a certain, certain way. And if it's great wood, there's many different species of Pernambuco, 30 to 60 different species. There's 30 that are... That are 
acceptable for bow making. But you look at this wood, and here's this this piece of wood up by the, behind the head. It's five millimeter, five and a half millimeters thick. But when you really look at it, it's a foot deep. It's like a pool of water. It's it's these little square windows with a black dot in them, and they just they don't end. There's no depth to them, and it, it reflects and it flashes um, the grain and the movement, but also the shape. A bow, every the curve off the head complements the curve of the bottom of the head. So the top complements the bottom. The back cut behind the head complements the swoop of the nose. And all of these lines have a purpose. They're art. So when you when you go to the Louvre and you look at a Michelangelo and you stand there and you say, how did he ever figure that out? How did we figure out a scroll on a violin, which is that great art form, there's mathematical formula and, and that goes back forever. Yeah, on, it's it's multiples of 16s. It's a fractal, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And that's what a scroll is. It's like, how did you figure that out? And how come I can stand there and look at that and just be transfixed on it? It, it reaches out and it grabs you. You know, uh, if you if you get shocked by, because being an electrician, if you get shocked by 480 volts, it hits you and knocks you away. 277 volts, it grabs a hold of you and it doesn't let you go. That'll kill you. 120 volts will kill you. It grabs onto you, it doesn't knock you away. You get hit by 15,000 volts, it's a big boom, and it, most of the time it'll kill you. But a lot of times it'll just blow you away from it because it's so powerful. Well, this is these paintings and bows and violins, to me, art became like electricity. It grabbed onto me and it wouldn't let me go. I never wanted to leave the Louvre. They kicked us out the first day I was there. And every time I've been there since, I've never left early. Never left the I've never, ever, ever said, you know, I'm tired. I have to leave. And I'm dead tired, dead tired, you know, and I sat there, I could just, uh, and the same thing with great bows. I used to go into Hans Weissar's collection room where he had his vault, and I could pull out a box of 24 bows, and I didn't care whether I was looking at Albert Nuremberger, which is a German bow maker, or Francois Xavier Tourt. I could look at them for hours and hours and hours and study them. The, the, the beauty, Joe, is just, you know?
Well, I think the violin itself can bring out the best in people and absolutely the worst. And when we think of fine art, um, there is just such greed involved. Why do we need to possess a Stradivari um, to own a Stradivari? Well, if you're a performer, it, you know it's a great it's a great sounding instrument, but its value is not based on its sound because I think there's comparable things that are out there. It's really that desire to have that best, that the 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 holy grail, if you might, and that's and that's kind of what it, and that brings out the worst in people. It can bring out the absolute worst. There were many instruments stolen over the years. Um, the Gibson is a good example. It was stolen, played in a tavern for, for many, many years. The guy finally died, and, and then the wife, I believe, turned it in, and it was found again. Great Stradivari. Um, it, it just, there was some guy, I don't know the story, I'd have to look it back up, I don't know it totally, but, and I believe it was in France, somebody stole the collection, I mean, just literally built his own collection out of stolen violins, would have them stolen and buy them, and lived with his mother. And uh, many instruments, when they found out and they, they came to arrest the guy, um, I could be, I would have to look this up in the book. So the facts of it, it's a true story. The the facts are not, I don't have them in my head, but I believe he he drowned himself, committed suicide, and took some instruments with him. But he definitely, I know that he definitely destroyed the, some instruments so nobody else could have them. Now that's greed. That's terrible greed. And these things can do that. I mean, you know, we talk about the, the red violin. I briefly kind of watched it, but it was a little too cliche because it was, you know. Um, and that's what the general public sees, you know. They, they see, you know, Stradivarius. Everybody knows what a Stradivarius is is a violin. So as far as people are concerned, if it's a violin, it's a Stradivarius. Especially the fact that they sold so many of them with said his name, Stradivarius, and then they'd say in English under Made in Germany. Yeah, million, <laughs> millions of them. I had an aunt who thought she had a Stradivarius, and do you think, and it was not a good violin, but I was just learning, and I said to her, you know, do you think I could have that violin? And that's, no, it's a Stradivarius. I said, it says in English Made in Germany. <laughs> I, my dad, uh, his second wife, my stepmom, wonderful lady, had a cheap commercial Sears and Roebuck violin. And she um, asked me to take a look at it. And it was, of course, a Stradivarius. It was inscribed right on the back of the scroll Stradivarius. And I had to tell her what it was. German factory thing, late 1800s, early 1900s, sold through like Sears and Roebuck or something like that, mass-produced in Germany. She wouldn't talk to me. She wouldn't talk to me. Luckily, her nephew who bought a bow I made, uh, who is a, a professional violinist, took the violin into another violin shop down in Oregon where they said, yes, this is just a German violin. And... Then she started talking to me again. But it was, you know, and it's always, the story's always the same. This belonged to my great-grandfather. Um, 
Hans Weissar had a great one about a lady who came in and said, young man, I'd like you to look at my Stradivarius. And he picked it up and, of course, said made in Germany. And he said, I'm sorry, ma'am, this is not a Stradivarius. This is a German violin. She says, I'll have you know that this violin was made by Stradivari himself when he was vacationing at the Bohemian Spas. There's another one, too, where somebody came in and said they had a Stradivarius. And you'll know this better than I do because, uh, you know, Stradivarius, and he had made this for his daughter. And it was, what does it oh. say, Anna? What does it say? Fasabat Anna. <laughs> that was her name. Fadbut Anna. <laughs> Those things are so poorly um, pronounced. My friend in, in Atlanta, Buddy Huthmaker, owns a shop. He tells me about, you know, these, these country guys, you know, live out in, in country fiddlers. Great people, great folks. But one guy called him and said that he had um, gonorrheous violin. That's how he <laughs> pronounced it. <laughs> a violin made by gonorrheous. <laughs> of course, it's a southern drawl. I can't do it like Buddy does. But when he says it, it comes out. And then, of course, we've heard Facebot Anno, uh, which is made in the year of, or, or um, it's Fat Butt Anna. Uh, <laughs> it, it just it goes on and on and on. You know, there's uh, there's a lot of those little things. I don't know all the little. They somebody should make a book and put all those little anecdotes in there. When I worked for Hans Weissars, Margaret Shipman, we used to read these little things as. Uh, in the L.A. Times, there was a guy who wrote about words and where they originated from. And we found such interest in it. And then we started looking at things in the violin shop. And the interest, you know, is how, how did we get to call this um, something, you know, whatever it was. We were actually writing down, Margaret started writing down all the little anecdotes that that people would say about violins and the funny things that, that would happen. And she would put them all in this little notebook. I talked to her not too long ago. I should probably ask her if she still has that. It would be a wonderful thing. And she always said, well, we should write a book and, and put in all the funny little things about violins. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater in partnership with radio station WTJU-FM and the University of Virginia. The musical interludes used in this episode, as well as our theme music, was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. To learn more about the Rosin the Bow project, and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. There's also a place on our website where you can make a donation. That's right. We really need your support. There's our travel expenses, the fees for our podcast hosting service, and equipment costs, not to mention the enormous amount of time it takes to edit and produce each podcast. So if you can help us with a donation, we would surely appreciate it.